This is The Film File. This is episode 104. Raw music. Get the big sweaty guy hitting his gong. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And we're back for another show. The film show for film geeks by film geeks. And um, who wouldn't thought it after last week? It was all changed. There was uh, COVID on the horizon, and um, that bit of my COVID story is over. However, new plot twist. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, this all started two weeks ago when I was feeling like I was like on the way to COVID, but it turns out I wasn't. And then Lee caught it bizarrely through the power of the internet. And then after we spoke last week, literally Sunday evening. Me daughter flags up as COVID. Um, so I think that you've passed it back via the internet over to here. Oh, yeah. she's it, it really is a virus. So she, she's into like isolation for a few days. Uh, but I mean, she, she just stuck herself in a room and got on with her work. And then a couple of days later, my youngest son also catches it. So the house this week, because my youngest son normally shares the bedroom with the oldest son, but the oldest son wasn't going to share the bedroom with someone who's got COVID. So the oldest son has been sleeping downstairs, which means that the only safe seclusion spot that I have in the building at this point in time is this kitchen that I'm recording <laughs> in at the moment. Normally, after, I mean, you know me that I don't wind down after my night shifts. If I'm on a yeah. night shift, I'm usually awake until four o'clock, five o'clock, watching films and everything. So it was weird for me to have to come home and not be able to just put on a film or sit in the living room and like chill out because my son was crashed in there. Although I did come in the other night after after work and like I made myself some scrambled eggs, made myself a cuppa because he was still awake and watching something on Netflix. Didn't know what it was. Sat in the room with him, got out my tablet and started browsing. And as as he's watching, I'm like looking up every now and then thinking, what is this melodramatic nonsense that he's watching? And then the word the name Carrington comes out. I just like are you watching Dynasty? <laughs> and he was like, yeah. And, it was, and he's like halfway through the first season. I was like, never took you to be a Dynasty fan. <laughs> never took anybody. You know what? Of all the friends that I have who watch a lot of varied TV, I don't think I have anybody within my social group who ever watched uh, either that or, or Dallas. I mean, uh, when, I was, when I was a kid, obviously my mum would be watching it. So uh, it was always on and I'm aware of it. But it was never something that I thought that anyone would gravitate towards, and it—it it just seems it just this this is this is like me nineteen year old son who watches like all the Marvel shows and he watches horrors and he you know he, he embraces like all the geeky media that I do, and then to find out he's a secret Dynasty fan was a bit of a <laughs> I don't know it's a, it's a bit of a blow and I think I need to go into counselling now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, I'm glad you're safe. Um, yeah, me, I mean, I'm. I'm somewhat super immune by the looks of it. Yeah, I was just about to say, for me, I think you've got this, uh, you're one of those very lucky people. Now, I've, I've got a couple of other friends who've been in the house with their other half or, or family and, and not picked it up. And then, then there are families like us where all of us end up getting it. Uh, this time, was it was no more than a, a bad cold. You know what, if I'd not tested, yeah. and I'm sure this happens to a lot of people, I would have sort of carried on with work and not, not realised. I had two days when I felt really a bit low, but but nothing compared to the first time I had it. Um, my other half was a little bit more poorly than I was. Uh, by Wednesday, I was I was back in work, and uh, uh, it was it was 
a week. I'd, I'd probably had it for a couple of days before without even realizing it, or I'd had the start of it a couple of days before without yeah. realizing it. But yeah, it's. Uh, I'm I'm a I'm a bit dubious about these um, these new COVID rules, <laughs> or, or should I say, lack of COVID lack of rules. rules. Well, because... yeah, I mean, uh, we we go to masks don't have to be worn from after this Wednesday, and then isn't it by the end of March they're even going to say. Uh, if you catch it, you don't need to go into isolation. Just carry on as normal. Yeah, which I don't know what carry on as normal means. Just stay home and be sick, or go into work if you, you know, if you fancy it. Well, it basically takes it off. It takes the onus off any workplaces to pay any sick pay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It means that you're just going to be considered as absent. Yeah, I, I, I'm not convinced on it. But let's be honest. All those months ago, before lockdown one, Boris was clearly supportive of herd immunity this is but he had backlash gone, and now he's managed to get herd immunity because over the year they've caused so much confusion over what the rules are chopping and changing them that people have got sick of the constant changing of it aren't abiding by them anyway they can see a government that has had parties during lockdown with hundreds of people in so they weren't abiding by it they know that the public sentiment now is like whatever you tell us we don't care so he's just like well Every man for himself. We've got herd immunity. I've won. This is a, this might have been a long term strategy. This might just be a conspiracy theory mind of me just going into overdrive. But let's be honest. Looking at all the evidence, it looks like he's been aiming towards causing this confusion all along, so that he could get away with his herd immunity plan. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that was the original plan. I remember. I remember reading about it at the time, and, and that was definitely the goal. And and I think you're spot on there, Andy. But um... it's a sad state of affairs when you. You know, I mean, you should never trust your government anyway, but when you can't trust them at all with anything, mm. it's a real sad state of affairs. But it wasn't that long ago that we thought we were out of the woods and that was sort of what, September-ish? Yeah. October-ish. And then along comes another variant and who's to say there won't be another variant? Well, you know, it, as the variants go on, the way that my body is at the moment and the fact that I don't seem to be able to catch it despite people close to me at work, police, people close to me at home, I've I've not caught it at all. Maybe, maybe I'm going to be the Omega Man. Yeah, I was about to say, you will be <laughs> Iron Legend. You will be the I'm Omega I'm going to be Charlton Man. Heston. <laughs> yeah, you'll be there driving around Sheffield, watching films whenever you like, if I remember the opening of Omega Man. I mean, so. I mean, yeah, that'd be awesome. I mean, admittedly, I'll only have a limited amount of films that are opened. Uh, yeah, you but don't drive have, as well. I will have a cinema to be able to go and like chill out in and take yeah, all my DVDs. Which you know how to so. operate, so you'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, so I've got to watch I'm, Omega I'm Man fine. again. You've just reminded me it's worth watching again. I think we might have to add that onto a deep dive list. Yeah, we have done I Am Legend. Anyway, yeah. what's in this show? This week, we've got for you our usual reviews. Andy, because I was uh, COVIDed up, haven't been anywhere, but Andy will be talking about... Uh, the House, which landed on Netflix, My Son that landed on Amazon Prime, and Belfast. One of these films is potentially going to be in my top five for the year i think i can guess what that is we'll be doing a deep dive this week into not one not two maybe even more than three because we're bound to talk about more <laughs> the lord of the rings trilogy but before any of that we've got the news and as ever we start the news with our box office review what's doing well what's tumbling down What's staying steady? What's spinning its way through the charts to the number one position 
in a big return. Am I guessing? Am I clutching at straws there? But I do believe that a certain web slinger has made it back to the number one slot in the US. Yeah, Spider-Man has taken the top spot back this weekend in the US. It nabbed another 14 million. Uh, the film outperforming Scream, which was on its second week, which took a respectable 12.2 million and is definitely considered a, a success. Spidey is now the fourth highest grossing release in the US of all time, sat just behind Avatar, Endgame, and at the top, The, the Force Awakens. And it's the sixth largest worldwide, having taken approximately 1.7 billion worldwide since release. Sing 2 continues to pull in money in third place, with Redeeming Love and The Kingsman rounding out the top five. Kingsman struggling to stay there with a paltry just over 1 million. Here in the UK, Spidey stuck to the top spot, taking an additional £2.3 million, making for £87.4 million from these shows. Belfast, which I'll be reviewing later, comes in at second place with a very respectable £2.2 million. Scream dropped down to third place this week. Nightmare Alley crept into fourth. And Kingsman, again, holding on in fifth place. So, that's the box office. What's the news? What are the big stories this week, Andy? Well, let's start with our favourite song, the release date shuffle. Oh, it's a, a number one smash hit across the world. <laughs> well, um, it's now affected Mission Impossible 7 and Mission Impossible 8, which have both been delayed. Uh, MI7 was due out this September, but is now going to arrive in July 2023. Really? And the... That's a heck of a move. Yep, yeah, it's a huge jump and the next the, the eighth film will follow a year later in june 2024 there, there was the various issues on production with covid shutdowns which have led to a lot of delays on these two films that are getting shot back to back uh, the shoot was notorious for when tom cruise was recorded having a rant at his frustration at those who weren't following the procedures and we gave a big applause to and said he's spot on there's been all the production delays the shooting the back to back he's also got to take time out to promote Top Gun Maverick, which went through delays and got yeah, resh reshuffled multiple times. So that's adding more delays into it. Then you've got the fact, I mean, they could have just moved it back a few months and did it for Christmas, but Christmas is already packed with Avatar and Aquaman. So they could have moved it to January, February. A big blockbuster in January, February, not a good sign. Mm. So they could have moved it to late March. Marvel have already got that slot. They could have moved it to April. DC and Marvel have already got those slots. You can see where the problems come is yeah. that literally every major blockbuster slot has been taken with the earliest blockbuster season moment being July. If there's more shuffles that take place, I imagine that MI7 would likely jostle towards hopefully an April kind of release. But at this point in time, the only place that it could find is July 2023. It's a long wait and it feels like we've been waiting forever for this film. It's testament to the IP that it's not going to feel it's not going to feel forgotten no it's not one of those where you think ah it's been so long now that it's missed its window i'm i'm looking at you mobius i kind of think that there's a, a an eternal thing about mission impossible and tom cruise he, yeah. he he comes and goes he has hits he has the occasional movie that doesn't doesn't land for him but with mission impossible it's such a recognizable piece of ip that it, uh, like bond is to a degree yeah. that you can disappear with Bond for several years and then come back. And even though it's missed, no one misses it because it's it's still part of, 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 the, of pop culture. And I, I think yeah. the same for, for uh, MI7. 
think for the whole Mission Impossible franchise, he can take a couple of years out. We know that it's happening. We know it's going to it's going to land eventually. We know that it's going to go straight into uh, the the follow up the year after. Interestingly enough, I did see an interview with Simon Pegg, and they were he was saying that basically that movie wrote the guidebook on how to deal with COVID and filming. Most of the things that they put into practice have now become industry standard. Yeah, uh, which is why Mr. Cruz had such a huge rant because he'd invested a lot of his time into working out all those processes yeah. and stipulating this, 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 and we, do that, we don't film for two weeks while we're doing this and then we get onto this. For someone to disrupt all that, that was a huge, huge undertaking to get the production flowing and to have it crippled because someone decided, ah, I don't care about the rules. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame him for his rant that he did. No, absolutely not. We applauded it at the time. We've got to wait a bit longer for a Mission Impossible film. This is a, the seventh film in a series that has been running since 1996. It's not like they've been rushing them out anyway. So let's just sit back and wait and, you know, eventually be teased even more shots of trains plunging off cliff edges and things like that that we've already been teased with. I'm still going to be excited by the time it comes out. It could take five more years to come out. I will still be there day one to watch absolutely. this because I love the MI series. Uh, Paramount have also moved the third Quiet Place movie from March 2023 to September 2023, okay. which doesn't really come as a surprise. As we reported last week, it had lost the original director and has only just scored pig director Michael Sarnowski. Animated comedy Blazing Samurai has moved to Ju July the 22nd this year. The untitled animated Transformers film is now targeting July 2024 instead of late 2023. And the Seth Rogen-produced TMNT movie is aiming for August 2023. So everything's had some kind of shuffles. Meanwhile, and sticking with Paramount, or should we say not sticking with Paramount, Skydance Media have ended its long-running partnership really? with the studio and have switched over to Apple Original Films for their That's, first look partner. That is interesting. You know, they've had, had such a relationship. I mean, they were... They have. They've worked on, well, the aforementioned Mission Impossible series. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek, the Tom Clancy series. Terminator, True Grit, Annihilation, Life. Their name has been synonymous with some of the standout moments for Paramount's releases in the past decade and a half. Skydance still will have the rights to co-finance and co-produce exist existing franchises that they've worked with Paramount on, such as the Top Gun films, Transformers, and all the aforementioned properties. But they're not tied down to them. Uh, the new deal just means that any new projects that the studio comes up with can get picked up by Apple first. That is, that's a big major move. I mean, there's been a lot of moves within the industry at the moment. A lot of things going on behind the scenes with studios jumping backwards and forwards. Netflix have been stealing properties left, right and centre. But Apple, we've been saying for the past year that Apple are targeting the right kind of product to keep their quality. And grabbing Skydance is a very smart move for them. Let's move on into things going into production. Let's move away from the reshuffles. So let's move into, well, this is, I'm not sure whether to get excited about this. Disney with its live action remakes of its animations are very hit and miss. But there's some animations that are so beloved to me that whilst I'd love to see a modern interpretation of them, I'm not sure I want to see it done wrong. And they've now announced the Aristocats is getting a live-action treatment. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that pop up over the week. Um, and, of course, I knew it would get mentioned in the show. I absolutely adore the original animation of this. The The story, for those who don't know and have never seen it, and it's on Disney+, Plus. just get it watched. Just get it watched. Do yourself these favours. Stop putting these films behind you. Uh, it follows a family of per Parisian felines 
who are set to inherit a fortune, but their owner's jealous butler kidnaps them and dumps them in the country, where they team up with a smooth-talking Tomcat to make the journey home. And it's the music and it's the tone and it's the feel of this that I absolutely love. What I don't want is another Lady in the Tramp. Yeah, which kind of disappeared and it didn't make any impact. It was one of the first Disney Plus originals, wasn't it? If you, if you think back to the, the heady days of last year when yeah. Disney Plus started, it, it, it came on. It didn't make much of a much noise. Uh, it's, it's interesting you say Aristocats because it's one of the first Disney films that I clearly remember going to see. Mm. Uh, I remember the songs. I remember, remember all the songs to it. It's one of those uh, that uh, uh, I, I've got such clarity on. I remember having having a book that went with it, and I, I, when did it come out? Any idea when the original came out? Nineteen seventy. So yeah, nineteen seventy when it came out. I was I was tiny. I was really really young, and, and I remember, but I remember it so so clearly. It was the start of my love of cinema. Um, you're right, and they're going to do something akin to Lion King, aren't they? With it's going to be yeah. photorealistic, and it takes away a little bit of the charm. Animation and anthrop- anthropomorphic go together so well, but the, the CGI just just doesn't, because you're going for that ultra realistic look, and it, and it, therefore it begins to look odd. Again, yeah. looking at you, Lion King. Yeah, I mean, you look at the characters in Lion King in the original animation. All the expression is through the eyes; it's through large yeah. eyes or like squinting and everything. But with a real looking creature, you can't get that expression, and so it just ends up being. So once added a voice to a lion for some reason, I don't know why. And hence why you've hit the nail on the head. That's why the original Lion King will always be loved. And yeah. the remake has kind of been and gone and it's out of, out of the public sphere. But maybe we'll get more of a Jungle Book kind of approach, which managed to still convey the personalities quite well. We'll wait and see. Uh, the good news on it is that Keith Boonin, who worked on Onward, is writing the script. The bad news is Will Gluck, who wrote Peter Rabbit 2, is also writing the script. (laughs) So this could go either way. Uh, So let's move on to something. I think this might be one that will interest you because I've not seen the original, but you've spoken about it when we did our Christmas special. So A Christmas Story, the 1983 festive treat, is getting a sequel for HBO Max. I did see that. I think it's entirely unnecessary. I, I have such love for a Christmas story, as, as we said in the Christmas episode. I don't see the need for a sequel, unless, of course, it comes out and does something uh, amazing with the storyline. But it's it's going over hallowed ground, you know? It's it, <laughs> There's no necessity for a, a, a sequel. The story was told. Um, we knew that the characters grew up. I'm not interested in seeing them grown up. I know it features Peter Billingsley, I'll wait and see. The jury is out, but at this time, there's no necessity for it. I think it's interesting, mostly on this, that they've opted to go for a sequel rather than just a remake. Yeah. Um, which means it's it's probably a requel, uh, which yeah, is yeah. what the new term is that Scream has managed to thrust into the limelight. A requel, where you re- <laughs> remake the whole property again, but you bring in some of the original cast to keep the fans involved. Uh, Julie Haggerty is also reported to be cast to play his mother, Julie Haggerty. Oh, you have such a crush on her. So I've not seen the original. Next Christmas, I promise, I will get round to watching A Christmas Story. You will thank me for it. But um, by then, this one might also be out, so I might be able to do a double bill and uh, either love two films or love one, hate another. Who knows? In Bizarro World News, 
Have you read the story about the two fans who've filed a class action yes, lawsuit against I Universal Studios did. over Richard Curtis's yesterday? The yes, reasoning is they both rented the movie for $3.99 each after seeing the trailer, which had Anna de, Ar- Anna de Armas in. However, her role was cut from the film because apparently it was test audience responses didn't favour well to her being added as a potential love interest. And so the lawsuit is accusing Universal of deceptive marketing and seeks to recoup at least $5 million on behalf of affected customers. So basically everyone who's rented this movie, they're saying should get their money back. I'm, I'm baffled. Is this what the world's become? It's what the world is, Andy. It's not what it's become. It's what it already is. <laughs> I mean, personally, I want compensation for being subjected to so much Ed Sheeran for watching that film. So maybe <laughs> I should do a class action lawsuit. <laughs> um, it'd be intriguing to where where it goes. But you've it, what door would it open if they won? You know, how many yeah. scenes have not made it into movies that have been there in the original trailer? And she must be in it for seconds in the trailer. Yeah. Absolutely seconds. If you are building your entire viewing experience about somebody you saw in for seconds and she wasn't a name this is post blade runner to be yep. but um you know pre-bond uh pre the big time so you know yeah yeah uh, they've got to prove it that's the thing they've got to prove that was their intent to, to buy it based on that if this ends up be, like being successful then avengers infinity war can get sued by everyone who saw the trailer with the hulk in it yes then you get you get predators, which had the shot with all the dots over him as though he was going to get killed that didn't exist. Uh, Spider Man uh, Homecoming, Iron yep. Man and Spidey swinging and flying through New York. It's extremely common for either misdirection to be added into trailers, or for scenes that are in the trailers because the trailer gets cut during production. Yeah, that by the time the film comes out, moments have been lost. It's just part of the marketing thing. If you were that big a fan of Anna Daramus, surely you would have known from her IMDb page that she wasn't in the film. Yeah, and that's where the whole argument <laughs> will fall down. It's it's just a storm in a Twitter cup. Yeah. Do you remember the other week I told you I'd read Quentin Tarantino's uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book? Yes. Apparently that's becoming a bit of a thing because Michael Mann is doing both a prequel and yeah. a sequel to Heat. Uh, heat to novel yeah i was i was reading about this i mean my my initial question is is the prequel going to be called defrost and the sequel <laughs> going to be called simmer because uh, that would just be ideal More heat. turn up the heat <laughs> yeah I, I, I read about this and I, i'm torn on this one because i do think there's some interesting ideas to explore there but i don't want this to become a fad where every filmmaker decides to spin off their materials into sub-stories. It's, it's interesting because he, he has gone back to this story for a third time now because the original yeah. version of Heat was a TV movie called L.A. Takedown, which he remade as Heat with a bigger cast and a bigger production uh, budget, which is, but it's practically the same story. Yeah. And, and of course, he's now addressing it as, uh, as Heat 2, a novel. So I'll, I'll give it a read. I, I like Heat an awful lot. Um, quite like LA takedown for the uh, yeah. uh for when it came out so I'm intrigued to see where it goes the least interesting yeah. character in it was uh, Al Pacino's character for me is the uh, De Niro character was was what made the movie so uh the prequel I suppose will we, we'll deal hopefully more with with that character I'm 
guessing Heath needs to get added onto the deep dive list at some point. As yes, well. yeah, we should. It's you know what I've, I saw it at the cinema, loved it. Think I bought it on DVD as soon as it came out, and I've never watched it again. Never gone back to it. <laughs> that there's so many films in my li- list that I do that with that even though I love them, I never go back to them. You know, we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings in our deep dive. I noticed that Amazon have released the teaser for Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. What what a dreadful name. (laughs) (laughs) And and have you seen the graphic? So it's sort of Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, carved into into a bad plastering job. Yes. (laughs) It looks like one of those shows that you find on one of of those bizarre religious channels. (laughs) It doesn't sell it big, does it, at all? I'm I'm more optimistic about all the production art that we've seen of the concepts, etc., and how they're going. I know what kind of story they're going to be tapping into with this, the second age of Middle-earth, the creation of the rings, the rise of Sauron. As a fan of it, and, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings materials, I'm excited for the potential that it's got. I am sceptical that they'll manage to deliver, but... I'd like to think that this is going to end up being another one of the Amazon productions similar to a Man in the High Castle that taps into the material beautifully and presents it in quite a stunning way. I'm optimistically hopeful. I don't want to be disappointed. But rest assured, later this year when it lands, if it is bad, uh, there'll be a whole episode of me just ranting for 90 (laughs) minutes on here about how dare they destroy this so tragically on screen in front of me. The Rings of Power, though? Are you, are you buying that? Well, it's because it is the creation of the Rings of Power. It's going to lead up to the creation of those, those rings. The rings for the Elven Kings, the rings for the Dwarf Lords, the rings for Man, which Sauron then created the one ring to rule them all. So I get why they're going for that, because it's covering that era. They could have called it other things, but the other things that they could have called it would have meant nothing to your general audience who don't know Lord of the Rings okay. int- intricately. And so they've gone for the Rings of Power because that's the one thing that's familiar to most people. So let's go from Rings of Power to Great Big Sharks of Power. And filming for the Meg 2, The Trench, starts this coming week. Statham is back as the paleobiologist Jonas Taylor. Now, I can get him in the underwater action sequences, being a bit of a gruff hard man. I can't get him as like a paleobiologist. (laughs) (laughs) No. I found out something interesting about uh, Jason Statham this week. What did you discover? I didn't know. I'm currently teaching film studies at Mansfield College, West Knox College. Jason Statham's from Mansfield. He's from where? Mansfield. Ooh. Nottinghamshire. I never knew that. I thought he was an East yeah. End boy. Oh, yeah. He's, he's always had that like a gruff Cockney accent. Yeah. So um, he's from yeah, our neck a, of the woods to a degree. Well, that's a surprise. Well, yeah. I, I'll let him off then because he must be intelligent if he's from our neck of the woods. So <laughs> uh, maybe a paleobiologist is uh, absolutely right for him. Uh, but um, I mean, the Meg was okay. I know some people rave about it. I've, I, there's one person who I follow on Twitter who went through a whole year of watching it every day. And I was like, that's a bit much. That is a bit much. That's a I enjoyed it. Really, let's be honest. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It was hokum. It was a bit of fun. I'm interested to see what a sequel could do. The most interesting thing about that is, of course, Ben Wheatley directing it. Yes. I mean, he's hit or miss to most people. I generally get where he's going from. But it is strange to have him directing a blockbuster action film about a giant shark. Yeah, and a sequel to boot. And a sequel to it. HBO's Last of Us adaptation has added Jeremy Webb from Umbrella Academy and Lisa Johnson from what we do, who's um, directed on 
what we do in the shadows uh, to their director's list. The 10 episode series is due to land later this year. I'm getting more and more excited for the last one. Me of Us too. As adaptation. you know, big, big fan of the game. Uh, big fan of the sequel. Really, really hot on my anticipation list is, uh, is, is this show. I can't wait to see the first trailer from it. And Frafi has joined the live action eight episode prequel to Beauty and the Beast for Disney+. The series sees Luke Evans and Josh Gad reprise their roles from the 2017 live action movie as the pair set off with LaFou's sister, Tilly, played by Brianna Middleton, after a surprise revelation sends them on an unexpected journey. Uh, Fee is going to play a childhood friend of Tilly, who's now a prince. And Beauty and the Beast, and I was talking about this at work yesterday, is like Beauty and the Beast, the animation, was my favourite Disney animation of all time. And I absolutely loved the live-action version of it. I'm, I, I love the banter between uh, Luke Evans and Josh Gad in that film. I'm hopeful that it can carry through to make an eight-episode prequel. I think there's enough to be able to have fun with, with the, you know, the overblown Gaston character trying to be the hero, and Josh Gad as his um, little lackey hanging onto him. I think there's potential here to be a nice little eight-episode bit of fun. Yeah, Um, Anthony Mackie is putting down the shield of Captain America to pick up uh, the megaphone for his directorial movie debut. Uh, he's shooting Spark, which is a true story of unsung civil rights pioneer Claudette Colvin and Sunia Sidney, who recently brought a real-life person to the screen as Venus Williams is set to star. Uh, we should be getting some news, really, because uh, uh, Captain America 4 was uh, uh, was mentioned that Captain America mm. will be back uh, in Captain America 4. So that we, we must be getting some news at some point, an update on, on where that is at the moment. Oh, yeah, we're, we're pretty much due a reshuffle of all their schedule and what's coming up. But we're still waiting for news on Fantastic Four. Let's be honest, we're still waiting for yeah, that. Yeah, casting apparently started on Fantastic Four. Here's a bit of casting that made me interested and also slightly excited. Daniel Radcliffe is going to play Weird Al Yankovic in a biopic. Yeah, I saw that. Called Weird, the Al Yankovic story. Um, it's going to re- explore the rise to fame of the comedian, entertainer, and musical parody genius behind such tracks as Eat It, Amish Paradise, It's All About the Pentiums, and my favourite, White and Nerdy. <laughs> uh, the tongue-in-cheek official synopsis promises the film will explore torrid celebrity love affairs and famously depraved lifestyle and covering how Al from, went from being a gifted child prodigy to the greatest musical legend of all time. Uh, Yankovic himself said in a statement, When my last movie, UHF, came out in 1989, I made a solemn vow to my fans that I would release a major motion picture every 33 years, like clockwork. I'm very happy to say we're on schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, he's never really hit as much in the UK as what he is in America. He's no, huge in America. He's probably the biggest thing over here. But I've followed him ever since those early days of Eat It and Fat came out and hit the British audience. And I've got all of his music and I absolutely love him. I follow him on Twitter. I love his comedy style. I've loved every one of his cameos in things like Naked Gun and his soundtrack for Spy Hard was genius. I am so excited to see a Weird Al film, especially if it's going to play like it looks like it's going to play as a parody of Weird Al's own life. Excellent. So the... uh... Big money for uh, March is going to be on The Batman, but Robert Pattinson is already in talks to star in Bong Joon-ho's next film. Uh, So the Oscar-winning director who brought us Parasite is going to be bringing us... Mickey Seven. Well, it's untitled at the moment, but it's adapted from the upcoming novel, Mickey Seven. Okay. 
What do we know about that? Anything? I mean, it's coming from Warner Brothers. The story of the novel, which is due out soon, follows Mickey, who's a disposable employee on a human expedition to colonise the ice world, Niffelhelm. Now, what do we mean by disposable employee? Well, it appears that Mickey, when he dies, a new body regenerates with most of his memories intact. And so, after dying six times, Mickey Seven has started to understand the terms of his deal and starts to go against his programming. It reminds me a little bit of Moon. From what yes, uh, there's a fair bit of similarity in the concept there. Obviously, because the book itself hasn't been released, people don't know the full details yet. But it's it's got that interesting nugget of a spark there. And Robert Patterson, I've got a lot of time for him. I think he's marvellous in small projects and marvellous in big projects. And I can't wait to see him in the three hours Batman film that is going to be landed. Yes. Now, I knew we'd get around to talking about this. Three hours. Did, did anyone ever see that coming? Uh, well, films are getting longer and longer and longer. And to be fair, I mean... You get people at the moment saying, why don't they get? Why don't they make all the films 90 minutes like they used to? What, you mean like Ben-Hur? Oh, Cleopatra, there you go. Cleopatra, uh, The Ten Commandments. All of the epics used to be at least two and a half hours. Some of them went to four and a half hours. All that we're doing is we're getting back to that era where if the storytelling necessitates it, they take as long as they need to tell the story. Yes, there's some films that take too long on it. I'm looking at you, Red Notice. You didn't need to be anywhere near two hours. You should have been 90 minutes and a lot tighter. But was any moment wasted on the recent Spider-Man film? No. No, no. Was any moment wasted on Dune? No. There's loads of films out there that the time has flown by so well because it's so well structured that you actually wanted more. You actually felt you could have sat through another hour. And with something like The Batman, which Reeves has been talking about the dark narrative of the film, boasting this idea of a place that's corrupt and you try to swim against the tide in order to fight against it and make a difference. It's quintessential Batman. At the centre of those noir stories, it's almost, almost always the detective, right? And that's why he's the world's greatest detective. And so this story is, in addition to being almost a horror movie and a thriller and an action movie, at its core, it's very much a detective story. So it's a noirish detective story. Three hours. Sounds about right for the amount of things that are going to be juggling there because there's multiple characters. We've seen reveals of um, some of the characters that are in there. We're probably going to be surprised with a few additional cameos. Well, the original cut they were saying was four hours and they've got it down yeah. to three. I mean, I don't know if that's going to be three on the nose or, you know, everybody thinks of, of, uh, of The Last Spider-Man as being closer to three and it's, it's yeah. about 20 minutes off. Well, it's currently 175 minutes, including eight minutes of end credits. There might be a few more trims beforehand, but it's it's enough time to tell a good story. And if it's a good story, then it works. I'd rather that than chop it down to under two hours and it just becomes an action fest with no detective elements. Because that's yeah. what we want. We want him to be the world's greatest detective that he's supposed to be. We want to see that play out. It's it's gonna be interesting and it's only a month and a half away. It is. It is. Uh, as staining comic books, did you see the Moon Knight trailer? I did, yes. And I got very giddy. Yeah, now that wasn't how I thought the approach was going to go to Moon Knight and uh, genuinely surprised. Can see where they're going with it and see how they're pulling it together. Uh, yeah. Reminds me of the Jeff Lemery run from a couple of yeah. years back. And it also differentiates it from Batman because Moon Knight yeah. was a, a spin on Batman and was intended to be. Uh, and at one point was being very, very close to, to being Batman. And then they went down the schizophrenia multiple personality route uh, which got explored by 
by Bendis. And of course, as I just mentioned, the Jekyll and Mary one. Uh, yeah. So it feels very, very similar to that. What is reality? What's going on, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I was I was very intrigued. It, it gave enough away to uh, color everyone's interests, but told you nothing at the same time, which is what a good trailer should be. Maybe if it told me more, I wouldn't be feel the need to sue. <laughs> That's it. We're going to sue everyone from this point onwards. A um, couple of quick pieces of news to round off the main news. So Mark Foster, who gave us Quantum of Solace and World War Z, is to helm a remake of the 2015 Swedish comedy A Man Called Ovi, which was adapted from the best-selling novel from Frederick Backman. Tom Hanks will star in the role as a grumpy old man with staunch principles, a short fuse, and a sad backstory who finds his life changed when a chatty family move in next door, flatten his mailbox, but somehow tap the heart of this cold, lonely man. Tom Hanks is in there. That's all that I needed to know. David McGee, who scripted Life of Pi and Finding Neverland, is penning the script. Some good credentials there. Plans a set to begin filming that this year. Agatha Christie's Endless Night is to get a new film adaptation from Studio Canal. Uh, the story, which sees a series of strange events unfold, changing the lives of a couple who moved to the English countryside into a har- harrowing nightmare, was previously adapted for the screen in 1972, and the tale is considered one of Agatha Christie's darkest works, scoring high praise critically. So it has good potential to deliver some nice frights and chills. And Netflix and Aardman, who are currently working on another Chicken Run film, are going to continue to work together as they've announced a new Wallace and Gromit feature, which will see Gromit becoming concerned that Wallace is too dependent on on his inventions, especially when he develops a smart gnome with a mind of its own. Uh, This film is aiming for a 2024 release on Netflix, uh, with the Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget is targeting a release sometime in 2023. There's been a couple of trailer drops this week, other than Moon Knight, Anne Hathaway and Jared Leto have big dreams in We Crashed, and one that I know you'll like, Andy. It's a pirate's life for Reese Darby and Taiki Watiti in the teaser for Our Flag Means Death. Um, <laughs> which, funny enough, I has been a story that has been in Hollywood for some time, in, including a script by the great William Goldman, but I didn't realise that they've done a, sort of, a, a much funnier version than the, than the Goldman version of that, that true life story. Yeah. Before we go, I've got to mention the sad passing of a, well, a couple of actors. Firstly, we talked about Moon Knight and actor Gaspard Duliel, who features in the new Moon Knight series, died at the age 37 in a skiing accident, which is very, very tragic. This is an actor who, whilst his name won't be on the tip of most Western audiences' tongues, in France, he was very prominent. I was introduced to him through the excellent Brotherhood of the Wolf, from Christoph Gans. Oh, I didn't realise he was in that. I, I, it's a, a film that I absolutely adore. And also a very long engagement, the Jean-Pierre, Jean-Pierre Junet film. Both films that I absolutely adore, and I recognised him from there. He stepped into the Hannibal Lecter role for Hannibal Rising. It, yes, It gave him some prominence, but it wasn't that great a film, and so it kind of like put a stopper on his moving into the Hollywood mainstream. It, so he stepped back and started starring in French cinema over the years, such as Saint Laurent, and It's Only the End of the World. And as Lee's just said, he's recently completed his shooting of his part as Midnight Man for the upcoming Moon Knight series. Everything was in the can, the role is completed, but it will be a, a sad little recognition of a great actor who never really got the international prominence that he probably deserved. But if you can track down any of his films, get them seen, get them watched, and get them appreciated. A sad loss, far too young. And of course, the sad news that that affected everybody across the board, really, uh, whether you're a music fan or a movie fan, is Michael Liadi, better known 
worldwide as Meatloaf. The American singer and actor, let's not forget he was an actor. Um, he was noted for his powerful, huge, wide-ranging voice and, and theatrical shows. Passed away just the other day uh, and a sad loss across all those. And, and you know, the thing is, it is when I started looking back into Meatloaf's career, of course I know him musically and of course I know him for movies, how many movies he was actually in. Yeah. Clearly most recognisable for playing Bob in, uh, in in Fight Club. And But he made his, his, his film debut pre-Bat Out of Hell in the Rocky Horror Picture Show playing Eddie. Yep. With also, there's been cameos through the years in memorable moments such as Wayne's World, The Mighty and Beautiful Boy. His film career is hugely prominent and he was known for being a very colourful stage and screen personality, but also quite that character off screen as well. In interviews and on panel shows, he always brought a charisma, personality and exuberance. He, he just seemed like one of those really iconic, legendary people who was also quite down to earth at the same time. What more can be said about him that hasn't already been said elsewhere and so much better? It's such a sad loss. Age of 74, passed away. Condolences to friends, family and everyone. Even if you weren't a fan, I think everybody has a has a meatloaf moment, whether yeah. it's 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 from Fight Club or whether it's from Rocky Horror Show or whether it's one of the numerous amazing songs he was involved in. So as you said, Andy, a sad loss. And that is this week's news. You're still listening to the film file with me, Lee Ford, and me, Andy Beacon. If you're a fan of the show and you want to know more then please head over to your favourite podcast platform and find the film file. And please subscribe to the show. Remember to hit a like and remember to leave a review. If you want to know more about the film file, all you have to do is tundle over to... Head over to Twitter and follow us at Film File UK. Pop over to other social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, even TikTok. Look for Film File UK. You'll find us there. Or you can get in touch with us directly by simply firing us an email with any thoughts, suggestions, queries. Hey, try to get me to join a Ponzi scheme. I don't care. I just want emails. <laughs> <laughs> join Fight Club, but you won't be able to talk about it. Uh, that's That email address is podcast at filmfile.uk. Hey, the other day, I was on uh, Radio 5 Live on Monday. Got a great big plug-in for the Film File, so I'm hoping lots and lots of people who uh, who listened to 5 Live last Monday uh, will have heard the film file plug and will be this could be their very very first show so hey hi there five people <laughs> <laughs> Not five people i hope more than five <laughs> as it was listened to by hundreds of thousands one person surely will be drawn to us so it's that time of the show when we do our deep dive and andy's been so excited for this week's deep dive He's been wanting to do this one, I think, probably since the get-go. I think I've been the one who has been most reluctant about it. Because I've <laughs> had to go back and, and readdress this particular uh, series of films. But to be honest, when you are talking about The Lord of the Rings, you are talking about a moment in film history when the impossible was brought to the screen. Who would have thought that we would have got three Lord of the Rings films, each one taking one of the books and making that happen. The Ring of Power, it has been found. 
Sauron needs only this ring to enslave the world. It must be destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom. Strangers from distant lands, you will unite or you will fall. You have my soul. And you have my bow. And my axe. This task was appointed to you, and if you do not find a way, no one will. The Lord of the Rings, directed by Peter Jackson. The first one came out in 2001 at the Fellowship of the Rings. The second, The Two Towers, in 2002, and Return of the Kings finished the series off in 2003. Directed and written by Peter Jackson, shot entirely on location in New Zealand and the US. The film featured an ensemble cast, which included Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Astin, Sean Bean, Kate Blanchett, John Reese davis Christopher Lee, Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Hugo Weaving, and Andy Serkis. And the films can really be said to be epic. Andy, I know you have an awful lot of love for these films, much more so than I do. I recognize them as being astounding pieces of filmmaking. To be able to shoot those three films back to back in, in with that amount of magnitude was just a huge undertaking. And, and of course, they got recognized by the time the third film came out at the Oscars. And for years, they've been trying to get The Lord of the Rings onto the screen. Could anybody else have done it in the way that Peter Jackson did? Could anyone else have brought the true depth of love and movie making to these films? Andy, I know they, they, uh, they're very special to you in the same way that uh, our film last week, uh, Before Sunrise, was special to me. Yeah, I mean, bit of backstory here is in the same way that Star Wars, and we've mentioned this, was the film that sparked my childhood journey into loving film and made me realise at a young age that film was something that I loved. I was a heavy reader as a child. I read a lot. I mean, I've already said before now that I was reading Stephen King by the age of 10. But before I got to Stephen King, the book that got me into reading and got me loving exploring strange worlds and fantasies and adventures was The Hobbit. At a very young reading age, I started reading The Hobbit and it quickly became the book that I would always go back to. By the age of 10, I had read all three volumes of The Lord of the Rings. And I'd started working on the Silmarillion, although it would be a few more years before I'd be able to appreciate the prose of that historical kind of book. Uh, but The Lord of the Rings itself, Fellowship of the Ring, Return of the King, uh, The Two Towers, I had read the three volumes of them before I turned 10. And I go back to reread all the volumes every few years. I must have read them eight, nine, maybe even 10 times through my life now. That's how much I adore these books. I adore them almost as much as Christopher Lee did, uh, who apparently in interviews, he said that he re reads them once a year, which wow. is why when he was cast in the film, he originally went for the role of Gandalf. He didn't get it, but he was more than happy to play Saruman because he loves the material and he wanted to bring something to it. He wanted to be a part of it. Now, the story of the books had originally made its way to film with Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, the animated and rotoscope uh, story. And again, this was another first. When we got our first VHS player, one of our first rentals was the Lord of the Rings, the Ralph Bakshi one. and Which I, I've got a lot of love for, by the way. I must admit that I probably watched it a bit too much during that 24-hour rental period, because by the time it went back to the rental shop, part of the beginning of the tape chewed up and the rental <laughs> shop charged us. 
Now, with them charging us for the replacement of it, it meant we got to keep that version of it. So my uncle took out a pair of scissors, took the tape out, snipped out the bits that were chewed and knackered, put them back together, and I had I had a copy of Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings on VHS to watch over and over again. And I did, and I lapped it up, and I loved the art design in it. I loved the style of the rotoscope live action mixed in with the animated characters. It's a beautiful film, but we never got the second part of it. Yeah, it was unfinished. It finishes after the Helm's Deep. But I held out hope that eventually I'd get to see the rest of that story told out on screen. So when Peter Jackson was tagged to make the tale into a trilogy, I was excited, but also worried. Worried why? Because at that point, Peter Jackson was only really known for low-budget indie schlock. And his one standout feature, which was Heavenly Creatures, which showed that he's not just all horror. But I still wasn't convinced that an indie director would be able to handle the epic scale of three films telling such a spectacular story. So it's still amazing today when you slot in, and not the 4K remasters, not the Blu-rays, I slotted in my extended edition DVDs and realising how perfectly he made these films, how well of a handle he had on controlling all the elements and how the effects work stands up so much better than other films of the time. These films came out at a time when the Star Wars prequels were coming out. The Harry Potter films, the, Har- the first Harry Potter film came out the same year yes, as the first yeah. Lord of the Rings film. You look at the first Harry Potter film and the second Harry Potter film now, and the effects work is ropey, shoddy. Uh, it looks rubberized. They haven't got car- CGI characters, right? And then you slot Lord of the Rings in, and you look at Gollum, and you believe that character. That CGI character represented on screen is still perfect today and still i think the best cgi character that we've ever had on film and that's totally down to two things though, don't you as you say you're going to say down to, down to the performance aren't you you fall you fall in love with the character despite the fact he's a troubled soul he's he's kind of a bad character but he's been made bad by circumstances and it's down to two things it's down to the excellent work that weta digital did and these films put weta digital firmly on the map for a studio to do effects ilm were basically the reigning, reigning champions of special effects technology. But you compare ILM's work at that time, again, Harry Potter, with this, and you realise why Weta suddenly came into prominence and ILM had to pick up their game a bit. They couldn't rest on their laurels of history from that point onwards. They had to improve. But more than that is Andy Serkis himself. Hidden behind the CGI is an actor who wore a gimp suit, rolled about in mud, hunched over leapt from scenery to scenery and threw everything into a role, even though he knew he wouldn't be on screen. That didn't stop him from giving the performance of his life. And as a result, everything that Andy Serkis has done since with regards to mocap work, his own studio now trains people in mocap. He's directed mocap. It's all come from his experience on this film and everything he put into it and realising that in order to get a believable CGI character, you need to believe you are that character on set itself. I mean, I said this right at the beginning, but it was such a, a masterful piece of work. I mean, just for a studio to trust in doing these three films back to back with such scale, with a director who 
as you said, had only done one kind of serious piece of work. And The Lord of the Rings had been mentioned for years and years before even Ralph Bakshi, John Borman was interested in doing it, interestingly, with the Beatles. But that's for a certain episode of What If that I can't get my head around. <laughs> There's been lots and lots of talk about, about Lord of the Rings coming to the screen. And I can't imagine anybody else who could have brought it with such style uh, and with such heart and that's i think why it works you know he, he loves it he loved the characters he he, he his, his cast were absolutely spot on I mean, i'll talk about some of the casting ideas in a sec um that he did create a fellowship and i think yeah. that shines across each of the film it's his love of the world his love of the characters he, he's he's absolutely embedded i i think he, he took a stumble with the hobbit and i think the, the main problem he had with the hobbit was by doing it as, as three films and, and the hobbit should be short and fun in the way that lord of the rings is 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 epic but i think for, for this piece of work so as i said there are many many directors have been wanting to do lord of the rings and as i said john borman uh, Ralph Bakshi, as, as Andy mentioned. But Miramax originally were, were quite interested, and they were interested with Jackson uh, after a few abstract discussions and, uh, and a script uh, and, a, and a casting wish list, which included Kate Blanchett, Ian Holm for Bilbo, Patrick Stewart might have been right at that point for, for Gandalf, but Ian McKellen became the number one choice for Jackson. Uh, Christopher Lee, sent Jackson a photograph of him in Wizard's costume because he wanted to play Gandalf, as Andy said, but decided he'd be perfect and absolutely perfect for Sauron. There were suggestions of uh, Max von Sydow, Paul Schofield, uh, even, strangely enough, Morgan Freeman. I could see that. And then when New Line took over, they suggested Christopher Plummer or Sean Connery, both of who declined the part. But they did veto, interestingly enough, Richard Harris, who then, of course, went on to uh, Harry Potter. Yeah. Other parts that were considered were Lucy Lawless and Nicole Kidman for Galadriel. Anthony Hopkins, Sylvester McCoy, who was uh, later recast as Redegast for Bilbo, Paul Schofields, Jeremy Irons, Malcolm McDowell, Tim Curry for Saruman, uh, Tom Baker, Tom Wilkinson, Sam Neill, Bernard Hill, um, Peter O'Toole were also considered. Uh, Miramax even uh, auditioned uh, the great Patrick McGowan for the choice of uh, Denethor, uh, but he proved to be, well, quite grumpy. <laughs> yeah, a bit surly <laughs> is what, what I saw it read as. <laughs> uh, Donald Sutherland, John Reese davies who ultimately got cast, but it was John Noble who took over the role. Uh, davies of course, was recast as Gimli instead of Billy Connolly, who was later cast as Dane. So, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis cropped up, as did uh, uh, Daniel Craig, who was on the top of the wish list uh, for the role that Sean Bean eventually was casting. Um, there's so many variations and what-ifs of how this film could have been made. And we all know the story of Viggo Mortensen coming in late to play Aragon because Stuart Townsend had been cast uh, and it wasn't working out. This film is really one of those where everything about it is absolutely absolutely perfect everybody fits in um the, the casting choices were superb i can't think of anybody else in this film playing any of those roles it's it's one of those films that it's interesting to see the extra features on the discs or listen to the commentaries if you listen to the cast commentaries on the discs particularly the extended editions where you get even more commentary on there as well you can get the friendship that they all built on set how they became a fellowship themselves. I mean, they all got tattoos, famously, of the Fellowship. 
uh, including Syria McKellen, who you wouldn't have thought to be a tattoo kind of person, but yep, he got a tattoo with the rest of the team. But yeah, Sean Astin talks on the commentary about how they would like all the cast would help with setting up the lighting or carrying things from location to location because it wasn't just they're turning up to be actors, they're turning up to be a part of a great story. And you've got moments in the film, such as you know, Vigo Mortensen, who broke his foot kicking a, a, an orc helmet and falls to the ground in in pain, but continues acting and it become it remains in the film because expresses the frustration that Aragorn was feeling at the loss of the Hobbits. There's so many elements of this film that just work so well. And yes, the story, Jackson in adapting it over, he cut a few elements out from the story or he changed some characters around and he tweaked it. But it's the kind of changes that long-term fans of Tolkien, like myself, understood the reason for and embraced. If they could go back and redo them, Yes, I would love to see The Scouring of the Shire, which is what closes off the books. And that's basically after the ring's been destroyed, they go back to the Shire and find that Saruman has actually ransacked it with his orc army and turned it into industrialised. And it's supposed to show that no matter how isolated you think you are, war will affect everyone. But we didn't want that at the end of a film. We didn't want a downer like that. Imagine finishing a film with going, oh, and it all was trash anyway. Yeah. And it, w- it wouldn't have worked cinematically. Tom Bombadil, I never quite got as a character in the books anyway. I know what his, his presence meant, but it's not essential to the story. So it was a great, you know, great choice to remove him from it because I think it would have damaged that first film a bit for general audiences who don't know Tolkien. It's a great trilogy of films. And I still say it's a trilogy of films, even though I generally consider them as one film. They are one story. No film in that series stands alone on its own. You can't just go in and go, oh, I'm going to watch Return of the King. I've never seen the other two because you've got no idea what's going on. You can't watch Fellowship without getting ready to watch the next two because it ends just bluntly. All of the films are linked. It's all one film. And yes, we got the Hobbit trilogy. And it's not bad. It's overlong. It could have been two films rather than three. I get why he added in loads of materials. He wanted to give all the appendices and the backstory to it and give it a a feeling of the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. But the biggest problem with The Hobbit was the effects. We've already mentioned that Weta Digital's effects work on the first three was groundbreaking, but it was a lot of practical effects. There was moving scenery to give forced perspectives. There was use of like like small actors against like the tall actors and like people on stilts to give the perspectives, et cetera, et cetera. But then when it came to making The Hobbit, everything became CGI. Yes. The orc armies, which looked magnificent in their makeup in the original Lord of the Rings, are now all CGI and it's not aged well. You watch The Hobbit films now, they look like they were made before the Lord of the Rings films because they look cheap. They don't look convincing. Too much CGI has ruined it. Yes, Gollum was a great CGI creation. That doesn't mean you pack every character into CGI. And there's famously the moments that Ian McKellen lost his rag a bit on the set of The Hobbit, where he was basically doing green screen work against a load of tennis balls yeah. uh, to represent the dwarves sat around the table. And he, he he's just basically broke down. And he burst into tears saying, this is not why I went into acting. I didn't go into acting to act against balls on sticks and you kind of get it because he was coming back to the the franchise thinking that experience on lord of the rings meant so much can we repeat that and he discovered pretty early on that that wasn't the way they were going to go and it was going to be 
a bit cheaper. I find what worked in Lord of the Rings, which was, as I said earlier, was the heart. The heart was missing from The Hobbit. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro was originally in place to direct it for an awful long time, but uh, in, including moving down to New Zealand. And I, from the rumours that I heard, uh, it was it was taking so much time that, that his family weren't happy down there and wanted to move back to the States. He's down as a producer. I think he would have uh, um, had a, a, an interesting approach. His approach was to do it as one film. Yeah. Uh, I think the three films overextended what is is a is a quite a slight book by comparison. And too much time is taken away from the quest element to deal with sort of secondary characters. And uh, uh, it, it gets lost. Uh, clearly, it's understandable why Jackson wanted to go back to this world and explore it further. But I just think it was a, a, a missed opportunity of doing something which could have been a lot tighter and certainly didn't des deserve to be brought into, into three. And that felt like a, a money grab as opposed to, as I said, the heart of it. Yeah, The films were an absolutely huge success, earning millions, uh, making back their uh, initial investment. Um, altogether, the, the films have grossed over uh, uh, billions worldwide. 2.99. 2.99 in fact yeah uh, and are, are much loved but it much loved for me less so to do with the story but to do with just the the endeavor of making those kinds of films back to back mm. uh, and doing it in with such a, a grandiose work in such a grandiose way with with a, a, a the perfect cast i'm not invested in lord of the rings in any stretch of the imagination but i love what jackson did it only ever falls down for me with the last film and it's and it's multiple endings but the films are an absolute work of art and that for me is the epitome of what cinema is it's that scale that epic on screen you can always tell how much a film is impacted on society by the amount of memes that are linked to it and i don't think any film series has as many memes as the lord of the rings from gandalf that the meme of when you return to a video game that you've not played for years, I have no memory of this place, um, to the Taking the Hobbits to Isengard music video, which is absolutely, once you've seen that music video, you will not be able to watch the films again and get to that point of the film without rupturing in laughter. <laughs> it impacted on general audiences. Like you say, you're not really a fan of the source material. You've not really as immersed in it as I am. You appreciate it for the technical achievements and it's a, a stunning set of films. I appreciate every aspect of it. It managed to reach everyone. The Lord of the Rings films should be an addition to everyone's collection, either in the extended format, especially if you're a Tolkien fan, or just the general format. But they should be within some everyone's collection who says that they're a film fan, even just to study the technical achievements involved. So that's our deep dive for this week, Lord of the Rings. And if you want to watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where can you find them? You can catch the Lord of the Rings standard editions of The Fellowship, Two Towers and Return of the King on Sky or Now TV at this point in time. You can rent them for decent prices or purchase them over on other streaming platforms. And the Hobbit series, I believe, are currently on both Netflix and Amazon. Uh, but I mean, you can pick up you can pick up the full box set of all six films for about thirty quid on Amazon at the moment in Blu-ray. So why not treat yourself? 30 quid for six films. And we'll be back with another deep dive next week. So Andy's been to the cinema. I was COVIDed out. 
and couldn't quite make it and wasn't in the mood to watch much to be perfectly honest Andy I think that was my kind of uh, bit of brain fuzz that went off with uh, with Covid and while I wasn't particularly poorly couldn't really invest the time in anything but thankfully you've been to the cinema with one film that I am gagging to watch that'll be Belfast be good son if you can't be good be be careful. careful You're with us or you're against us. Touch my family and I'll kill you. From acclaimed director Kenneth Branagh, Belfast is a five-star masterpiece. How could I leave Belfast? This is our home. When change is everywhere. The Irish were born for leaving. Otherwise the rest of the world would have no pubs. Family is everything. What do you want? I want my family with me. I want you. Belfast, only in cinemas January 21st. Kenneth Branagh draws upon his childhood memories to bring a coming-of-age comedy drama set against the backdrop of the Troubles in Northern Ireland in the 1960s, focusing on a small community in Belfast and particularly one Protestant family and how the riots and anti-Catholic sentiments affected the lives around them in late 1969. The film artfully takes a child's eye perspective to events, sidestepping the full-on trauma of the time but casting an innocent naivety to the events around them. The confusion as to what everything means as Buddy, played by Jude Hill, an excellent young actor who really, really grabs your attention, eavesdrops on snippets of conversations and continues to go about his life in amongst the turmoil. His failure to comprehend that things such as looting during a raid are bad things makes for some genuine laughs, but there's also the realisation as to how the innocence of the young is stripped away by dark events going on around. Jamie Dornan, Dornan and Catriona Balfi, as buddies Mar and Pa, portray a couple stretched thin by the events around them, and also by Dornan's work taking him away from home over to the mainland of the UK for long periods of time. And when you add Kieran Hines and Judy Dench as buddies Granny and Pop, the core family are rounded out to absolute perfection. Dench, as ever, gives everything but doesn't take away from those around her a skill to complement the work of everyone she shares a screen with that she's often shown throughout her illustrious career. Belfast will grab your heart. It will make you laugh. It will make you fret and it will leave you wiping tears from your eyes. It's a heartfelt look back at the past and the people left behind. Branner's personal project is presented in glorious black and white, albeit with a few smart flourishes of colour and has some absolutely stunningly beautiful cinematography by Harris Zambalukos. The opening transition alone from colour shots of modern Belfast to black and white street in 1969 is a visual delight. Potentially already settling into my top films for 2022 list, Belfast is deserving of all the praise being levied at it, and it deserves to score well at upcoming awards. Based on that alone, Andy, and I was I was so eager from when I saw the first trailer for this one. I, I, I can't wait. Uh, now I'm uh, not self-isolating. Um, I've just got to find the time and I will be there. What else do you have? Over on Amazon, a film dropped called My Son. When I looked at his cabin, I could see his clothes were still in there. His bag was still in there. We continue to interview everybody who has come into contact with your son. understand that you've been traveling a great deal. You've been in Libya, Iraq. Do you have reason to believe that it's because of what I do that Ethan is missing? Now, Mr. Murray, I have to tell you that we are investigating every hypothesis, including kidnapping. Would you say your work was dangerous? Directed by Christian Carrion, adapting his French film Mon Garçon, 
The film tells of a father, Edmund, played by James McAvoy, who split from his wife, Joan, played by Claire Foy, and works away from home, who returns home when their son goes missing. He starts to suspect that his son has been kidnapped, and when the local police investigation is shut down, he takes matters into his own hands to seek his son. So far, so generic. But what made this production unique and more original is that the lead actor, in this case McAvoy, wasn't given a script. Only working from loose information about his character and basic direction for a scene, McAvoy had to ad-lib his lines and spark conversations with the other characters in the film or react to things said by them. The idea being that Edmund feels lost and helpless, and so McAvoy, knowing nothing about what will happen, keeps it feeling somewhat real, as his confusion is represented naturally. It's an ambitious approach that you have to give credit to, and McAvoy certainly tries to throw himself into it. And I say tries, because, however, it also results in the early part of the film, when the initial investigations are taking place, feeling somewhat awkward and flat as a result. Scenes start off, and you can genuinely see McAvoy straining to think of things to say, and moments where he clearly went off on a tangent to what the other cast were expecting can be seen by their somewhat confused replies back to him, leading to moments where the dialogue just feels very stilted, as both actors are trying their best to work out how to move the story along. And there's one scene in particular early on that meanders around mundane conversation before the other actor suddenly, out of nowhere, brings up the subject of a house he's having built and, funnily enough, already has the blueprints out to what to look through. And it's clearly an attempt to push the narrative back in a direction, but it comes across as randomly forced exposition. The final act plays out well, even if it is pretty generic, and it salvages a lot of the damage that was done prior. But overall, this is a film with lofty ambition that only serves to highlight why a good script is critical. Um, it sounds it sounds interesting, and, and I've seen similar films where actors haven't been given the full script or just been given an, an outline. They have a tendency to be, there's a certain sense of incomplete. Yes, you, you, you buy into the character's confusion, but they feel they're an acting exercise rather than a storytelling exercise for me. And and yeah. the ones that I've seen before just kind of throw me out of that. It's more there for the actor to go, aren't I clever or aren't I able to do these things than, than in, in telling a good story? Because you you share, yes, in the actor's confusion of what's going out, but that's not always what storytelling is about. I think based on that one, I don't think I'll be drawn. Finally, and this one does look interesting and it has made my list and I was hoping to have seen it before, but I ended up watching uh, this week's Book of Boba Fett instead. Yes, uh, the next one is The House, an animated movie which landed on Netflix. I've invested my whole life in this house. What's happened? <laughs> Don't be afraid. <laughs> oh. oh, dear. Oh, yeah. They're going absolutely nowhere. It's time to move on. <laughs> it's confusing, yeah. <laughs> I don't want this anymore. You can't stay here. Christ, that was quick. Time to go. 
get you home. A trio of animations linked by focus on a house. The first animation sees a family move out of their small cottage, enticed by the luxury of a mansion all to themselves. But something is creepy in the house, with the layout changing daily. And whilst the adults find that they are pampered, the children are seeking a way to escape. Dark and twisted, with an underlying analogy about craving material things at the expense of emotional connections, this is a sharp animation that will chill and also leave you thinking at the end. Then you get onto the second story, which sees a real estate agent fixing up a house to sell, but fails to get to the source of a bug infestation. And when some strange potential buyers seem to refuse to leave, it sends his world into upheaval. And the message here is a link with mental health issues. If you don't get to the root of the issue and let it fester, it will eventually consume your life. And the final chapter is set in a world with ever-rising sea levels. The house stands on an island. Some new age travellers bring a different vibe to the place owned by the very serious minded owner who is in denial about any risk of flooding to come. But they try to convince her to be free and adapt to the new world. A message in here about environmentalism and ignoring warning signs at peril. Each of these three tales is an analogy to real situations and leaves a strong message underneath. But each of them a fantastic animation, stop motion animation in a style that makes you... It, it has some resonance with works such as Wes Anderson's stop-motion work on Isle of Dogs and The Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's got that kind of crispness, the pastel colourings, the framing, but it's got the darker aspect. If Wes Anderson took some weird drugs and went on a horror-style horror of approach, this would be what he'd deliver. Any fans of stop-motion animation... There's a lot to enjoy in here. The crafting, the hand, like the voice work, the stories, but the just generally good tales as well. Well, we're checking out. That's the house on Netflix. Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely intrigued. I'd, I'd hope to hope to have seen it by now. Talking of uh, Wes Anderson and not the creepy side, uh, I noticed <laughs> that the French Dispatch has been given a release date on Disney Plus uh, next month. To look yes. forward to seeing again. So what we got coming up in the next week, Andy? The only real thing that's going to hit cinemas this week that is going to make an impact is Sing 2. It's done fantastically in the US, so we're expecting it to continue across the UK in such a way. Uh, there's also films like Parallel Mothers, Amulet and Detective Chinatown 3, which are getting limited releases. They might snap up some business. Um, over on streaming, however, it's quite a busy week. On Now TV and Sky, yes, you will get a chance to watch Paul W.S. Anderson's Monster Hunter this week. If you want. For instance, if you don't want. I will be watching it again. But then again, I'm an unashamed Paul W.S. Anderson fan. Uh, there's also a Scott Adkins action thriller named One Shot that lands. Over on Netflix, there's The Woman in the House Across the Street from The Girl in the Window, which is a satirical thriller with Kristen Bell riffing on Girl in the Window, On the Train, Gone Girl, and other such films. Interests me, mainly because I, I like Kristen Bell. Yeah. I think she's got a charming wit. Yeah, yeah. And definitely for me, Snowpiercer season three lands this week. So I've still got season two of Snowpiercer to get through as well. I've, uh... Oh, I, you definitely need to get through it because there's so much I need to talk about. And over on Amazon, there's a few M. Night Shyamalan films dropping. A few good ones at that. Signs, Unbreakable and The Village. Well worth a, de a, a delve into. And over on Disney+, Plus, I spoke about it last year. The High Fidelity TV series is landing for everyone else to enjoy. So get that yes, watched. Yes, you did. I remember Probably that. recommended. Sadly cancelled, but well worth watching that first season. And Marvel's Hitmonkey animated series is also landing. And Apple TV, 
are giving us the after party, which is the Lord and Miller comedy murder mystery series. So there's a lot on streaming this week. So I think most of our reviews and talking next week is going to be around the streaming media. Yeah, I noticed that uh, season three of The Servant is landing. And again, I'm only halfway through uh, season two. Um, Season one was brilliant. Couldn't put it down. Season two uh, has lingered. uh, And it's one of those that you drift off from and come back to. Finally got to the end of What We Do in the Shadows, um, season three, which was a fantastic ending and absolutely loved it. And I wanted to watch it weekly as opposed to to, uh, to binge it because I, I, I just wanted to savor it before it went anyway guys that's about it for this week but before we go and yes we do it every week it's our neat things things that uh, either of us have seen watched done enjoyed as long as it's been a neat thing we're going to talk about it andy your neat thing for the week so my neat thing for this week is i'm on i'm on to my video games again and i've gone back to a game that well it's kind of been with me throughout my console life Throughout console history, ever since I got my PlayStation 1, the Wipeout games have been very prominent, and I've adored every single one of them. This week, I reinstalled the Wipeout HD collection, which it's been out for a while, and it was pretty much just a repackaged compilation of the PlayStation 3 and Vita games into one bundle for the PS4. But I've loaded them up on my PS5, thinking, eh, it'll divert my attention for a couple of minutes, and I am well and truly hooked again. (laughs) The anti-grav racing mechanics have always felt cutting edge, vibrant and fresh right through the whole series from that very first game on the PlayStation 1 all the way through to the HD collection. And even though there's not been an entry in the series for so many years, this still feels like one of the slickest, freshest and most up-to-date racing games that you will ever play. There's so much fun with the different kind of challenges, the detonator modes, the time trials, the standard attack battles. Racing around an anti-grav track in your futuristic-looking vehicle, picking up weapons and then launching an earthquake down the track to disrupt everything ahead of you is fantastic itself. And the game has also had a VR overhaul. So if you pop on your VR headset... You can sit yourself in the cockpit and crash straight away, as I did. Um, I literally just started off, went three, two, one, sped off. I was like, what's going on? And just crashed. <laughs> I can't play it in VR. I've, it, it looks great. It's marvellous to be able to look behind you and see which um, opponents are overtaking you. It's too fast and too frantic. But outside of VR, I am well and truly going to be ploughing through this game and trying to get... I've lost all my skill. I used to be an expert at the Wipeout games. I've clearly forgotten how to play it i have no memory of this place as gandalf would say (laughs) (laughs) but i'm loving getting hooked on them again the wipeout hd collection usually drops in the sales on the playstation store and it's well worth picking up it's a polished representation of the best of the wipeout hd series my neat thing this week well if you're a comic book fan then you will know if you've not read them but you'll know of neil gaiman's the sandman um published by DC Comics, went to the Vertigo line, uh, original series that ran for 75 issues, a huge, huge acclaim, and one of the most famous comic books of, of recent history. Mm. Uh, for those who don't know, the main character of the Sandman is Dream, also known as Morpheus, uh, even though the character has other names, and he's one of the seven endless, and the other endless are Destiny, Death, Desire, Despair, Delirium, who was formerly known as Delight. And the story is about 
Well, I think the story is about uh, how Morpheus, the Lord of Dream, is captured and subsequently learns that sometimes change is, is, is inevitable. Uh, we know that in the next uh, month or so, that Netflix are finally going to be releasing the Sandman TV series. But if you're a listener to this uh, podcast, you'll know that I've been dabbling into Audible and I have been listening to the Audible version of The Sandman. And what a treat it is. What an amazing cast, all narrated by Neil Gaiman himself. It's an adaptation of the, the first book, uh, directed by uh, Dirk Maggs. And as said, Gaiman is the narrator, but James McAvoy plays Dream. Kat Denning is Death. Taron Egerton is my favourite character ever. John Constantine, got Michael Sheen as Lucifer, Reza Med as the Corinthian, Andy Serkis, Samantha Morton, Arthur Darville, Bibi Newworth from, uh, from Cheers are all part of this amazing cast. And it's, it's, it's a work of beauty. If you're new to Sandman, then you might want to give it a go before the series lands. Um, if you're a fan of Sandman, it is just absolutely brilliantly done. Um, done with love, done with integrity, captures the, the book perfectly, but also adds this other dimension to it. There is a follow-up, Sandman Act 2, which was released um, last year in September, which again features an amazing cast, including John Lithgow, David Tennant, Kevin Smith, Jeffrey Wright. I'm still halfway through the first uh, series. Jump onto Audible for the, for the free download you can get for a month and give Sandman a go because it is so brilliantly, brilliantly done. That's my neat thing for this week. And that's it for this week. And we'll be back next week with another film file. Andy, stay well. Avoid the COVID best you can. You aren't the outbreak <laughs> I'll try. I will try my best, uh, but I can't promise anything. I do think that I will end up catching it. You, you, you're, you're, body will be left to science if you don't. It'll be next next month, and it'll be two days before the Adamant gig. I guarantee <laughs> that's how my life plays out, because that's what life does to me. Yeah. <laughs> Best of luck avoiding it. Hopefully, I'll see you in the week. I'll, I'll uh, catch up with you the best I can. In the meantime, folks, thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next week. But I never thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. Music